President Donald Trump's new tax law has changed a lot of things this year. The tax brackets, deductions and exemptions, capital gains taxes, and more. What's different and what's stayed the same? We've got a handy guide containing key financial data for 2018. Just visit yourmoneyyourwealth.com and click special offer to download it for free. You'll have those changes, plus important tax deadlines, retirement account contribution limits, useful Social Security and Medicare info, and so much more right at your fingertips. Just click special offer at yourmoneyyourwealth.com to download it free. For me, the next level, you know, I want to get to 10 million. And it's not about the money anymore. It's about growing and becoming the person that I want to be. So finding those people that have already done that and then going after that. And I want to know that they have the details to back that up. I don't want to be learning from someone that is just talking about stuff in the ether. So right. <laughs> That's Michael from FinanciallyAlert.com. Today on Your Money, Your Wealth, he shares his inspiring success story of how being financially alert allowed him to transition from small business entrepreneur to stay-at-home dad and fire blogger. That's financial independence retire early with a growing net worth of over $2 million and how he can coach you to fire too. Plus, market volatility is back and Brian Perry CFP has the Q1 market update. It's tax season and you might not get audited, but watch out for those penalties. And just how much should you have in Roth, tax deferred and taxable accounts at retirement? Here are Joe Anderson CFP and Chuck Norris, um, I mean, Big Al Clopine CPA with the answers. You like Chuck Norris? Uh, sure. People think I look like Chuck Norris. <laughs> you are Chuck Norris. Because I'm Big Al. Big Al is like Chuck Norris. So <laughs> I have this this book, and it's, uh, you know, these little Chuck Norris sayings. Oh, really? Like Chuck Norris, he only owns number one pencils. Oh, it doesn't bother with two. <laughs> it doesn't bother with two. Got it. <laughs> Uh, now is he saying it himself in the third person? Quotes this it. is no, this is real life stuff. <laughs> like all of Chuck Norris' teeth, their wisdom teeth. <laughs> I love Chuck Norris. That means you love me. I do love you, you see, Al. You see Chuck Norris when you look into yeah, that Mike my Schmidt. face uh, and Mike Schmidt. <laughs> Mike Schmidt, similar look, yeah. right? <laughs> Schmitty. Uh, I got to meet Mike Schmidt a few years ago. It's yeah. kind of fun. Yeah, wasn't that at the stand? Humphreys? It was. A golf tournament, golf tournament. Celebrity golf tournament. Yeah. yeah I do remember Sat right that. next to him. Mm-hmm. A little he... hard to get him to talk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because... Uh, what is that called when you look like someone... It's a doppelganger? I, I, I don't know. See, I'm just helping you out here. It's Please. called a doppelganger. Okay. I've never heard of that. <laughs> All right. Let's, In my uh... 60 years, never heard of that one. See, I'm educating you. Fairly. Right off the bat. Did you know, Alan, all of Chuck Norris's toes are big toes? <laughs> I I figured. <laughs> a solar eclipse is the sun's attempt to hide from Chuck Norris. Yes. <laughs> Speaking of Chuck Norris. By, by the way, Brian, this is we've been doing these on we, the air, and they get funnier as, as you go. Yeah, we yeah, have to introduce yeah, Brian Perry here. To, Brian Perry is our director of uh, research at Pure Financial Advisors, um, and Alan was talking that he looks like Chuck Norris, so I was giving Alan lot, some Chuck people, Norris uh, quotes here. A lot of people mistake me. Yes. Uh, Brian Perry, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you. Great to be here again. Do you know who Chuck Norris is? I do. Walker, Texas Ranger. Yes, oh, American look at that. hero. Right. Yeah. Uh, yes. Also, the got... total gym guy. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know that Chuck Norris can tie his shoes with his feet? <laughs> uh, all right. Well, hey, we need to have some comic relief here because that market uh, first quarter was a little rocky. I think um, some volatility, to say the least there, Brian. Yeah, absolutely. And I appreciate you keeping your sense of humor through it all. And it's probably a good lesson for investors because, you know, after, what was it, 2017 was one of the smoothest rides we've seen in markets in, frankly, in history and was more or less a one-way ride higher. Uh, Q1 of 2018 continued that way with a strong January and then towards the end of that month kind of hit the skids. And we saw extreme volatility with multiple thousand-point declines in the Dow Jones Industrial Average and then recovered a little. And, and now more recently have seen enhanced volatility again and uh, wound up with a down quarter for U.S. stocks. What was um, – how did we end up? Let's uh, go through some of those numbers for our listeners. Yeah, so it as always, it depends on what asset class you're looking at, right? I mean, some investors had a pretty good quarter. Uh, emerging markets were up 1.6%, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it's a positive return. You know, the flip side is REITs, real estate investment trusts, were down 7.4% in the U.S. 
But the truth of the matter is most markets were down anywhere from 1% to 2%. So you had the S&P 500 down just over 1%. You had um, the bond market, which usually the bond market tends to move a little bit in the opposite direction of stocks, but higher interest rates did that in as well, down about 2% on the main bond market index. And then if you look at smaller stocks in the United States, also down in the 1% range. You know, so that, all in all, more red than blue. Well, if you take a look, uh, this does not happen often this quarter, where you have um, a broad stock market in negative territory, as well as a safe asset class such as bonds in, um, in down as well. You know, and that's certainly true over the last couple of decades. Um, what's interesting is if you look, there's definitely a perception that stocks and bonds move in opposite directions, and that's been true for the better part of the last 15 or 20 years. But over longer periods of time, they tend to move more often than not in the same direction, which may come as a surprise to a lot of today's newer entrants into the markets. And as a rule of thumb, bonds and stocks move in opposite directions when inflation is at low levels and or investors aren't concerned about inflation. As inflation begins to tick up, and, and one of the things we saw that upset markets this quarter was fear of higher inflation, as inflation reaches higher levels, bonds and stocks actually do begin to move more often than not in the same direction. Um, so, so I think that investors going forward, uh, there's certainly value to the diversification bonds provide, um, but they don't want to rely on that too heavily, and they do want to understand that sometimes they do move in the same direction. That being said, bonds generally don't move down as much as stocks when stocks are falling. Why does that happen? So as inflation goes up, that means what the cost of my goods and services that I purchase increase. And so why would bonds go down as inflation goes up? Yeah, it's very simple is that if you for most bonds and of course there are, there are a lot of varieties of bonds, but for most bonds you're receiving fixed coupon payments on a semi-annual basis and then at the end of your investment you receive your principal back. The higher the rate of inflation, the less those future payments of interest and the return of principal are worth. And so bond investors, above all else, fear inflation because it eats away at the purchasing power of the dollars they're going to get back in the future, and those dollars are fixed. That's one of the reasons sometimes stocks do a little bit better in an inflationary environment is because the argument goes that stocks and the companies behind them have a little bit more pricing power they can generate profits, they can increase dividends, and you can get capital gains perhaps from stocks that will keep pace with inflation. Um, but in the last quarter, we saw fears of higher inflation, which hasn't necessarily actually shown out yet. And inflation's a little bit like the boogeyman, where people are always looking for it, even when it's not there. Um, but that resulted in an uptick in, in interest rates, which caused bond prices to fall. And then those fears of interest rates going higher earlier in the first quarter actually prompted some of the stock declines as well. I've got a question, Brian, about bonds, because I think a lot of people are concerned about bonds. They've gotten a lot of bad press, it seems, the past several months or even quarters. And, and when, you, when you invest in bonds, it's mainly for some security in your portfolio, yet they go down. But there are some risks with bonds, like duration, credit quality. Can you kind of go over that and explain that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, as with anything, when, when you invest in something, there's always a risk of loss. Otherwise, you want to get a return. And there's different sources of, of ways that you can lose money in bonds. And one of the big ones is credit risk. And that's probably what most people are familiar with is if they lend money to, let's say they had bought an Enron bond or a Lehman Brothers bond before those companies went under, you buy those bonds, the company goes under, and they can't pay you back. Um, generally speaking, you don't lose 100% of your investment, but you lose a significant portion of your investment. Um, the, the problem with credit defaults like that is that you don't have a choice of whether or not to lose the money. In other words, when the company goes under or the entity goes under, you're not getting your money back. The other main source of risk in the bond market is interest rate risk, and that's what you mentioned with duration. And, and duration is just a mathematical equation that measures how sensitive a bond's price is to interest rate movements, both up and down. Um, and what happens is that when interest rates move lower, bond prices tend to go higher, and when interest rates go higher, bond prices tend to go lower. And the thing of it is, and the longer the duration and the longer the maturity of the bond, the more sensitive it is to those interest rate fluctuations. The one thing I think is important to remember, because a lot of people do worry about rising interest rates causing the price of their bonds to fall, is that you don't have to realize losses that are caused by an interest rate movement. And what I mean is getting back to the credit event is that once you've lost money there, you don't have a choice. Your bond was worth 100 cents on the dollar, now it's worth 30 cents on the dollar, and you have to realize that loss at some point. With an interest rate movement, you can choose not to sell the bonds. 
even if the bond has declined in value, let's say from 100 cents in the do- on the dollar in the marketplace to now it's worth 90 cents on the dollar, if you don't sell, you haven't realized that loss. And you can still wait for the bond to mature at par, assuming that there's no credit event, and realize your, your full investment. Yeah, so clearly, Brian, shorter-term bonds, higher quality, are, are they're going to be safer, but then you give up returns. So how should people look at bonds? Yeah, I mean, the most important thing is that there's no one answer, right? I mean, there are vastly more bonds available than there are stocks available. But the, a couple of the common things to consider is you want to match the maturity of your bonds to your time horizon. And what I mean by that is that if you need money, let's say, in two years to fund a child's education, you shouldn't go out and buy 10-year bonds. You should buy two-year bonds. And if it's a longer-term investment, let's say it's part of your portfolio for retirement, oftentimes you still don't want very, very long bonds because what happens is that over time, bonds in, let's call it the 2 to 10-year range or the 2 to 15-year range, provide the vast majority of the returns you could get by going out longer, but they have a lot less of that interest rate risk that we were just talking about. So as a general rule of thumb, most investors are going to want to concentrate, like you said, on those short and intermediate-term bonds. Yes, they do sacrifice a little bit of income relative to longer-term bonds, but the give-up isn't as great as you might think. Um, over time, and this the last time I ran this number was uh, was a little while back, so it may not be exact, but about 90% of the return of a 30-year bond could be achieved by keeping your investments under 10 years. So you're not getting 100% of that return, but you're getting the vast majority of it, and you're taking on significantly less interest rate exposure, which I think is a pretty compelling argument in a part of your portfolio that ultimately is designed to be safe, because after all, your bonds are your safe money. Hey, question, um, because right now, um, I'm let's say if I'm looking for income, and I think traditionally speaking, People would purchase bonds and live off the coupons, and then they would look at other alternatives to try to create income. Well, over the last several years, with interest rates as low as they've been, they're looking at other alternatives to try to create income, such as maybe a high dividend paying stock or maybe preferred stocks. And there could be some confusion. And and we've had Larry Swedro on, we've had all sorts of individuals on talking about, um, I guess, the misunderstandings is what the word I'm going to use now um, on how some of these vehicles work to create income is like, all right, well here, I don't want to spend any principal. So let me buy some bonds with high coupons. So I'm going to go long because I don't care. Um, I'll go 30 years, even though maybe I have a 20 year retirement, I'm going to die. And then the kids will get, you know, the, 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 the principal balance. I'm going to live out the coupon and maybe I buy high dividend paying stocks or maybe even preferred stocks. What's your take on preferred? You know, I, I mean, I, I think that the key word in there that you said about preferred stocks and dividend-paying stocks is stocks, right? They're they're not bonds, and so I think it's important that people realize what they're buying. I mean, we we talked at the beginning the performance of real estate investment trusts; those are often used as a proxy for bonds by people that want income. They were down seven and a half percent last quarter. So a lot of times when people buy the bond proxies, whether they're preferreds whether they're real estate investment trusts, dividend-paying stocks, those companies and those investments are still very sensitive to interest rates, but you're also taking on stock-like risk. And, and if you think about preferreds, they're really a hybrid asset class. They, they lie in the capital structure of a corporation somewhere in between stocks and bonds, and it's a very niche market. It's, the entire market's only about $500 billion, which might sound like a lot, but in the context of the capital markets, it's very small. Um, and they're not very liquid in bad times, and in the financial crisis, the Treasury Department made a very clear delineation between preferred securities and bonds. And what I mean by that is that with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the mortgage giants, when they were in trouble, the U.S. Treasury came in and effectively saved the bondholders by guaranteeing the, uh, the principal value on those. But they delineated away from the preferred securities and forced those into bankruptcy. So it's clear in history, and it's clear right now, I think, that a preferred security is not the same as a bond. That doesn't mean it's a bad investment. Uh, you just need to know what you're buying and that the risk factor is significantly higher than it would be with quality bonds. Um, and if you're buying preferreds, maybe you're not taking the investment that you're putting into those preferreds out of your safe bonds. Maybe you're taking it out of stocks. Or maybe you're taking a little bit of money out of your stocks and a little bit of money out of your bonds to buy some preferreds. Because doing that keeps your risk profile relatively consistent. If you're selling your high-quality bonds to buy preferreds, you're, you're doing a swap that's increasing the risk of your portfolio probably significantly. I would say now with the volatility that is, I mean, we've had a very low volatile market for years. We're seeing some enhanced 
volatility. What would your advice be to our listeners now? Um, because I think there was some complacency in a lot of the portfolios that you've looked at, analyzed. Um, we see a lot of home bias, um, a lot of money in U.S. growth companies um, because the S&P has done quite well um, since you know 2009. Um, what would your advice be now? I mean, sh- should people just be status quo? Should they take a look at their portfolios? What, what, you know, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, absolutely not the status quo, and, and taking a look always makes sense. I mean, a portfolio is something that needs to be, doesn't need to be changed constantly and, and often shouldn't be changed, but it needs to be monitored for sure. And what happened over the last five or six years, like you mentioned, U.S. companies did really well. The U.S. stock market outperformed most international markets, and a lot of investors began with that home bias where there were overweight U.S. large companies, and then those companies were some of the best performers. And a lot of the portfolios we see are 70 or 80 or even 90% invested in large U.S. companies, uh, which ran into quite a bit of difficulty this quarter. And, and I think this past quarter was a testament to that international diversification, where while U.S. markets were struggling, you saw emerging stock markets perform positively, and you saw global bonds perform positively as well. And, and how many people out there do we meet that own any global bonds and yet, while the U.S. bond market was down 1.5%, the global bond market X, the United States, was up 1%. So, so I think that this last quarter was a reminder to investors that as markets shift, you need to go back in, reevaluate your portfolio, and reset it or rebalance it, like we talk about, back to your strategic allocation, whatever that might be. And, and that's really difficult to do. I mean, it takes discipline to sell what's done well and buy what hasn't done as well, perhaps. But that's how you reach success over time and how you keep your portfolio aligned with your goals. We're talking to Brian Perry. He's the director of research at Pure Financial Advisor. He's a chartered financial analyst and a certified financial planner. Any parting words, my friend? You know, only to keep it in perspective. I mean, the market has been more volatile recently, and that does, like you said, follow a period of extreme calm and, and complacency can lead in. The point moves are large. When you see the Dow fall a 1,000 points, there's certainly a sticker shock element to it. Uh, but keep in mind, percentages are what matter, not point movements. And as the stock markets have gone up over time, the levels have increased, and so the point movements have to increase commensurately. Visit yourmoneyyourwealth.com and click on the show notes for this podcast episode and decide for yourself if Chuck and Big Al are doppelgangers. You know, market volatility means nothing to Chuck Norris. He doesn't care if the markets plunge. He was the one that told them to plunge. You might not be so brazen. How will you manage market volatility and risk? And what will be your sources of income in retirement? Southern California, you've got the chance to learn from Brian Perry and the rest of the Pure Financial team in person. Our two-day retirement courses and our free monthly lunch and learn events can give you the tools and confidence you need to help you plan for the retirement you've always dreamed of. For dates, times, and locations for our lunch and learn events and retirement classes in San Diego, Orange County, or Los Angeles, just visit the Learning Center at yourmoneyyourwealth.com or call 888-994-6257. We're in this inside box studio in our office. I know, right? It's giving me a hot, panic attack. Hot, hot box, yeah, right? hot box. But we got a great guest. We do. Mike. He's live in the studio. Yeah, live. Michael Hall, how you doing? Great, great. You know, Michael Hall is part of the fire movement. Yes, which is which very is cool. exciting. And yeah. I, I, I want to dive does, in. That doesn't mean firemen. That means <laughs> no. uh, financial independence, retire early. So what, um, Michael, you retired at, what, 36 years of age? Yep, it was 36 years old. <laughs> and so what you started, how, so tell our listeners here. Is that all right? Um, Thirty-six, totally financially independent. You live in San Diego, right? So it's not like you're living in uh, what South Dakota, right? <laughs> Are you playing it's cheaper out there? It, it, yes, yeah, it is a right. little bit cheaper out in South Dakota <laughs> sure. than it is here in San Diego. Right. So tell us a little bit about your fire story. Sure, sure. So where I kind of started off was um, when I was growing up. Um, I was pretty fortunate, and then I had some uncles that had actually so-called fired or basically retired early, and it was something that I just thought was kind of normal because right. it was so close to me, but um, lo and behold, I realized that it actually wasn't, so I was really lucky in the beginning just to be able to ex- be exposed to that idea, um, and so when I was growing up, I'm like, oh, this is cool. He's home with his family. We get to go different places and do different things. That's kind of what I want to do. So the funny thing was actually I wanted to retire even before I started working, which is obviously a bit silly. <laughs> um, but it was always in the back of my mind that I wanted to retire early. So uh, when I got out of school, um, I decided that I wanted to start a company. 
problem was I didn't know how to do anything, so <laughs> I didn't have any company to start. Uh, so what what essentially I did was I went to work for a company for a good year, year and a half, and from there basically I was doing IT work. And what happened was during the dot com boom, um, things were great. I got a you know decent paying job right out of college, um, and then all of a sudden nine eleven happened. You know everything just basically imploded from that point. So my company that I was working for basically started laying off people left and right. And about after the sixth round of layoffs, I was like, do I want to stick around or not? So basically, I, I got a couple of my friends in my office. And I'm like, do we really want to stick around here for the seventh round of layoffs? And they're like, no, let's, let's go head out and do something. So that's how, how we started by basically leaving, started our own company, and basically grew it from the ground up for about 10 years or so. What kind of IT um, company was it? So we did basically did IT integration and support. So basically outsourced, managed IT. So if someone has a desktop issue, a server issue, they would call us. We'd go out. In the old days, basically, we'd go out and you know, drive our cars over, climb under the desk, plug in Ethernet cables. And basically kind of grew from there, basically hired on staff, got more complex with networking and servers and whatnot. Yeah. How, how big a company? How many employees? Or how many clients? Um, so in the beginning, it was just a few of us that started it out. And we had a home office. But by the time we finished, we had about 13 employees or so. And, and then, so walk me through the process. So you built that up with just some buddies at your old company, mm-hmm. right? And then they're laying people off and you're like, you know what? I'm not going to get the pink slip. I'm going to start my own business. We have a now we have a little bit of experience in IT, yep. and so we can be, do some basics. Yes, right. So you and a few buddies said, "All right, we're going to open up our own shingle." How did you market that? How did you start marketing your business? Um, how did you get clients? How did how, because I I think a lot of younger individuals want to start their own business, but they don't really understand the true mechanics of how to be successful building a business, which you have. Sure, yeah, and I'll be you know pretty honest. A lot of it was luck uh, to a certain extent. Obviously, the timing of things worked out. Um, but a lot of it was through referrals. So basically, we do one job, we do a good job, someone refers to someone else. And that was kind of like the initial engine that really got things going. Um, so you give up a high-paying job to start your own business. I mean, that first year, did you, I mean, did you, were you in the black? Actually, ironically, we were. Um, and what happened was the company that we were with essentially had a division of IT, and that was essentially us. So we basically you know, left and... You know, at first they were a little upset, obviously, that we were leaving, but we said, hey, we understand that, you know, we don't want to stick around because obviously the situation's, you know, pretty dire for the company, obviously, um, but we'll, we'll make you a deal. We'll give you guys 50% of all the revenues for the next year and a half, and, you know, if you want us to transition, your, your clients are like, no, 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 we don't, we don't want to basically, you know, okay, well, that's fine. We'll go out and get our own clients, and we had, you know, some referrals that we had, you know, just personally that we had in place. Um, but that was nothing to basically get us in the black. Ironically, once we left, a month and a half later, we get a call from our former company saying, hey, we just want our clients to be serviced. You know, you guys basically take them. No, oh, no that, need to pay us 50%. Without paying the 50%? Without, <laughs> wow. So, so that, that actually landed us in the black, yeah. um, which, was, which was nice. So, you know, obviously that was pretty fortunate in the beginning. And from there, it just kind of snowballed. But, you know, we, we definitely made a lot of mistakes along the way. So 10 years in the making, and then you finally say, well, I'm done, I want to sell it? Or was there an offer on the table that you couldn't refuse? Yeah, so along the way, we had a couple of unsolicited offers from companies. And for me, I always wanted to kind of grow the company to the next level. Some of my partners were basically very happy in a lifestyle business where they could, you know, just work a few hours, make a decent income go home. But that wasn't necessarily where I was at. And we were all very good friends, you know, kind of like family, but we had very different ideas in terms of how to run the business. So that didn't necessarily mix. So when we had a secondary um, offer to be basically bought out or merged with another company, I said, hey, here's an opportunity basically for us to keep the company intact and at the same time pull out equity, um, which was really important at the time that we did it because cloud computing was becoming such a big um, thing back then. And so what happened was instead of us investing all of our, you know, profits that we had produced already and put it into new infrastructure, we were able to merge with another company, use their infrastructure because they were a large national company, and kind of go from there. 
And then, so you got to check and said, all right, well now, what, I want to be a stay-at-home dad and start blogging financial um, literacy to to the public? Or tell me a a little bit more about the transition from selling the company, um, getting out of that line of business, and then doing what you're doing now. Sure, yeah. So, so yeah, it was never necessarily the intention to... Retire early, right at that. You didn't same, hear your right money, your that. wealth, like ten years ago. <laughs> say, this is a dream of mine to have a really. Maybe bad I heard podcast. it in the back of my head, and I was just like subliminally <laughs> absorbing it. it. You turned it right <laughs> off. Right. right. <laughs> but yeah, essentially, what happened was my daughter was born right around the time that I basically transitioned out of the company that we sold to. I, I basically stayed with the company for a year and a half, and at that point, my daughter was a year old or so, and I said, you know what, I'm going to take a pause. And, you know, basically spend some time with her. And that's kind of what really kind of gave me the, I guess, catalyst to really jump off at that point and figure out, you know, what I wanted to do next. And kind of basically for a year, I did a lot of exploring. I decided, okay, do I want to, you know, do the whole early retirement thing? Do I want to go back to work? Do I want to start another business right away? And what I really, you know, ultimately realized was that I'm never going to get this time back with my kids when they're young. And... So I was like, well, why don't I just take a few years off, see how it works financially. I think, it, I, think I can do it with what the base that I've created thus far. And that's kind of how basically it started. And it just kind of snowballed from there. The reason why I started the blog, though, was to kind of keep my mind active. I was changing diapers during the daytime, <laughs> feeding <laughs> bottles. And you got, right. you know, transitioning from running a business and having yeah, employees and then all of a sudden going like 180 to basically, you know, feeding kids. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I mean, it, was, it was a big transition. So the blog was a way to basically keep my mind active, have a little side project. Whether you're 36 or a little bit older, if you're approaching retirement, it's a good idea to make sure you're prepared for it. Learn how to control your taxes in retirement and how to protect yourself against market volatility, increased longevity, rising health care costs, and Social Security uncertainty in retirement. Visit the white paper section of the Learning Center at YourMoneyYourWealth.com and download our free retirement readiness guide. You'll learn strategies that'll make your money last a lifetime and it won't cost you a thing. Download the Retirement Readiness Guide from the white paper section of the Learning Center at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Michael, a lot of people that retire early have these um, amazing stories where they save 50% of their income or 75% of their income, 80% of their income. In your case, were you were you saving along the way or was this just a, a, a fortunate situation to have a company that sold and you got enough money to be able to do this? Sure. No, and that's a great question because uh, I think what what listeners should probably understand is that I had a small business. So it wasn't like I was making gobs and gobs of money. And it wasn't like even when I exited, I got some big fat check that, I mean, it was a decent sized check, but it wasn't like big enough to just basically go retire in the beach. Um, but what did allow me to basically retire early was that I was doing that saving along the way. I was saving approximately 50% with my wife for a good chunk of probably seven, seven or eight years or so. Um, and we lived, you know, a pretty comfortable lifestyle. But we were able to still save that money because we didn't necessarily feel the need to basically continually upgrade certain things. Um, were, were you saving that because you thought, well, man, this business is going to blow up? <laughs> and, <you'll, laughs> right? and you just wanted to make sure that you had a safety net? Was there some fear involved of, of saving? Uh, you know, because Al and I hear these stories. It's like, man, how the heck can you do it? But I think there's two sides to the fire movement. You can either work at a nine to five, right, and, and have a good paying job and then just try to save the hell out of every penny you can. Or you can do what Michael did sure. and, and, and say, you know what, I'm going to take on a little bit more risk here. Um, I'm going to build a business. Right. And and what we find is that the most, I think, successful people or have the most money or the most wealthy um, either inherit it or build a business. Yeah, or real estate. Or real estate. I, I, I would say that's what we find. However, not everybody has a business. So it's, to me, it's... Or has the guts to build right. it or, yeah, or, or the know-how. Or want to go out and buy real estate. So to me, it's really interesting to find people that actually um, kind of did this just through saving. And, and so you were kind of on that path already at 50%. But then this selling this business, it sounds like that was kind of the catalyst to kind of move you to the next level. Yeah, it was definitely helpful. Um, I also did invest in real estate along the way as well. And that's something where, you know, once I got beyond the general savings and I was starting to basically put money into the 401k, I had to figure out different avenues to basically make my money work for me. Right. So I started doing a lot of research on investing in real estate. Again, back to my um, relatives that basically had retired early, a lot of that was through real estate. So I kind of already knew 
real estate was a great vehicle to basically build wealth. And so during the upturn, you know, in 2005 to 2008, you know, I saw all these things going crazy. People were, everyone in their mother was a real estate investor at that time. And, you know, the good thing was I was a numbers guy. So I was looking at it, I'm like, well, this is not really cash flowing. So I was really patient. You know, I, I waited a long time. Um, I waited for basically the entire crash, and then I kind of jumped in. And even then, I still made some, mis- made some mistakes. I, right. The, the first house I purchased that was supposed to be a rental, uh, I couldn't rent out. So. Oh, <laughs> got it. So also, uh, in your website, you've referenced that you read 139 personal finance books. So that's, tell us about that. That, that must be part of this, uh, this journey to where you got well-educated. Absolutely, yeah. And I think that's something that... Um, you know, I really started reading a lot when I was younger, probably in my teens, um, and, you know, really wanted to understand how money worked. Um, because I saw for myself, you know, even though I had uncles that were basically well-to-do and had retired early, my own family wasn't necessarily in that kind of category. Um, and I saw how money, you know, basically was had some negative aspects composed to it. And so I really wanted to understand how you could use money as a tool and so that's kind of where I started the journey, basically reading and feeding my mind all these, you know, different principles, how to make money work for you. And that's where, you know, I really got the idea to basically start saving What's early and paying myself. What's your personal favorite? Um, you know, what really I think sparked it was the Rich Dad Poor Dad because it really told a great story in a very simple way. Um, and from there, obviously, you know, there's a lot more technical books, but that was really that impetus to basically be that cast, turn on that switch in the head and be like, wow, I can make this work. Yeah, that was to me such a such a good and popular book in the early 2000s. I think a lot of people read, including myself. And I was already a real estate investor, but I got fired up even even more at that point. But yeah, that's that's fantastic. And then and I, I, one of your principles too is giving back. And so explain that because some people, when they think about giving, they they think, well, maybe I'll wait till I'm retired or have a lot of money. But you made that as part of your practice throughout. Absolutely. Yeah, and the funny thing is, I mean, a while back, you know, while I was growing my wealth, I didn't necessarily give as much as maybe I could have. But what I realized along the way, actually by reading a number of these books, there was one kind of common thread, and that was really about giving back once you kind of get to a place of having freedom. And that really resonated with me at a certain point, and I started doing it. And the funny thing is that the more I did it, the more wealthy I felt. Um... And it wasn't really about the money anymore. It was about kind of giving back and trying to grow this ecosystem. And that's kind of basically morphed into the blog itself, you know, basically sharing ideas, trying to spark other people's, you know, awareness that there's other possibilities than what the popular media will tell you. And what, the blog is what, financiallyalert.com? Yep. And so you have what your net worth on there. You're, you have your debt. I mean, you're just yeah, getting I got, naked. I, I got it right here. It's <laughs> right in front of me. So what? Your net worth snapshot: a couple million bucks, five streams of income, 139. Um, what, what made you say, "All right, well, let's just let's yeah, let's just, be public about yeah, it." Yeah, let's do it. Sure. Yeah, and it took me a while. It took me a good half year to figure out if I actually wanted to do that or not. And the reason why I did that was because when I was in my own kind of search and trying to figure out, you know, what are the numbers? What's really working? I love to see the numbers. Like I said, I'm a numbers guy. So I think a lot of times the the details are what matters. And I want to basically go and find the people that have what I have that, you know, for me, the next level, you know, I want to get to 10 million. And it's not about the money anymore. It's about basically growing and becoming the person that I want to be. So finding those people that have already done that, and then going after that. And I want to know that they have the details to back that up. I don't want to be you know, learning from someone that is just talking about stuff in, you know, in the ether, so to speak. Right. Show me the money. <laughs> yeah, because in my generation, it wasn't talked about. It was pretty secret. Still is, actually. I don't know about yours, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll show you my net worth statement. Yeah, okay. I don't, hey, want, I don't want to see it. So you're looking, um, you're, you're offering coaching. Tell us, tell us about that. Where can people find out a little bit more and say, hey, you know, I, I, I want to get involved in, in I guess financial independence, retire early, doesn't necessarily mean you have to be 20, 30, or 40 to do this. It could be at, any age. At any yeah. age, just to, because some people in their 60s might have to work till 80, so retiring a little bit earlier yeah, than I, that. If I could retire at 70, that'd be pretty cool. <laughs> right. Yeah. So tell us about your coaching. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and the coaching is all about basically taking someone, and if someone's just starting out, basically helping them to give a bullseye and figure out, okay, 
financial independence, retire early is a target that you can basically shoot for. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to stop working. Even for me, even though I say I'm retired early, it's a little bit silly in the word because most people that retire early actually never just sit on the beach. You get really bored after a while yeah. and you want to be able to grow and contribute. So most people go back to doing some sort of work or project or business. So really helping the people, I think, kind of set a goal from the early stages in their 20s when they're young professionals, that's kind of my target as the young professionals um, so that they have the options and the, like, the psychological freedom of hitting fire um, when they're at a younger age and basically having the option to work if they want to or not. There's a, there's a, huge, there's a huge psychological shift once you kind of meet those numbers. I, I mean, it, something has to trigger in someone's mind for them to save yeah, 50, that, 60, that 70, you, you yeah. know what I mean? It's a, it's a, and if they're married, I mean, both spouses need to be on board on that. Um, and for you to be able to coach that, or at least maybe you, you got to be part, you know, doctor, right? <laughs> Just to get in their mind. Because with you, it sounds like you had influences with your uncles. It's like, okay, well, here, I, I you know, I'm, I'm surrounding myself with people that are successful and that that's what I can strive to but there's a lot of people that don't necessarily have that influence. And I think it's awesome what you're doing is try to give that influence to help people out to, to achieve this. Absolutely. And you're, you're, you're perfectly correct. And that's part of the coaching is to basically give them that other perspective, help to share that and give them that support system because they may not have had those relatives. In fact, most people haven't had those types of people in their lives. And so to give them that additional perspective and that support system so that they know it's possible and they know that thinking outside the box is okay um, and give them that little push. That's what kind of the coaching is about. It's financiallyalert.com, financiallyalert.com. You got to check out his blog. Um, he's doing a lot of great stuff. Thanks a lot for joining us, Michael. Thanks for having me. We've heard great stories of financial independence and early retirement from the camper van flipper, Grant Sabatier, real estate moguls, Andrew Fiebert and Joel Larsgaard, bloggers extraordinaire, Jamila Souffrant, Chris Mamula, Fritz Gilbert, and now Michael from Financially Alert. Are you ready to take that job and shove it yet? If you missed any of these great interviews, you can feed your fire by listening to them or reading the transcripts at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Subscribe to the podcast, get our podcast newsletter, watch clips and full episodes of the Your Money your wealth tv show and take advantage of a huge learning center full of webinars articles white papers and much more it's all available at yourmoneyyourwealth.com joe you know uh, we're in tax time we are uh and you may not know that tax season ends april 17th yes. this year april 17th because april 15th is on sunday and april 16th is called emancipation day in washington dc so we have till April 17th to file our taxes timely. And if you can't get to them, then you simply need to file an extension. And a lot of people that can't file or for whatever reason, if they forget the extension and they owe on their taxes, they have to pay a 5% penalty per month for the, the amount of taxes due. How about if you, they file an extension but still don't pay? Is it still 5%? No, it's half a percent. So there's still, and either way, actually, extension or not, there's the half a percent penalty, there's the 5% penalty, and then there's interest rate at 3%. So I guess the point, the, the, what you're supposed to do is either file your return or file your extension by April 17th and make your payments with the extension or with the return. So example, I file an extension April 17th before April 17th. Right. And then <laughs> even by midnight of April 17th works okay. if you do it electronically. So then I got April. So if I pay my um, tax due, let's say I owe $1,000 in tax. I don't pay it on April 17th. I pay it on May 1st. Okay. So is that then 25 basis points interest or would mm. they charge me the full no, half a percent for that Half month. a percent for any part of a month. Uh, for any part of a month. And then they'll so charge if I pay April 18th. Yes. It's a half a percent? That's correct. Okay. It's a half a percent. If you don't file an extension and, and, then and pay April 18th, it's, it's 5%. a 5% penalty. 5%. 5% penalty. So then, all right, so I pay it in June. So I got April, May, June. Right. If I pay it June 2nd, do I pay the full 5% or half a percent on the, all of the month of June? <laughs> you would pay 
for 30 days after April 17th to May 17th, and then you pay another 5% because you- Oh, so you, it's 30 days? 30 days. Got uh-huh. it. Yep, got it, got that's, it, got that's it. how they calculate that. All right. By the way, that max is out at 25%, but still, why have a 25% penalty when you don't need to? Exactly. Right? At least file your extension. If you have no money, file your extension. So the penalty is half a percent, not 5%. So if you wait three months- because that's when your bonus comes in yeah. or something like that. Right. So then it's a point and a half. Because some, sometimes people think, I'm not going to file a return or Because I can't afford I can't, to pay my tax. I can't pay it. Right. At least file the extension. Now, of course, better yet, pay your pay taxes. taxes. Right. <laughs> right. But at least file your, your extension. I want to talk quickly about IRS audits because there, there's less, you're less likely to yeah, be audited. Yeah, they're going down again. Yeah. In 2017, it was one out of 160 individuals got audited. That's less than 1% for you math buffs. Now, in uh, 2000, uh, let me see here, 2010 was the peak. It was one in 90 individuals. So now it's one in 160. So you have less likely chance to be audited. But before you um, start deciding to be a little more aggressive on your return, I will tell you the audit percentages do make a difference based upon your income levels. For example, in 2017, those that had income of a million dollars or more, there's a 4.4% chance of being audited, hmm. not a 0.8 or 0.7, a 4.4%. And even that's down because uh, in 2000, uh, even in 2015, it was 9.6%. So almost 10% of, of taxpayers with more than a million bucks used to get audited, even just a couple of years ago. If you want it in percentages, it's 0.62% is the overall. Anyway, get your taxes done <laughs> by April 17th, uh, which turns out to be my birthday. Yes. So as you file your return, say happy birthday, Big Al. There you that go. Would be fantastic. Big Al's birthday right there. He's a CPA, and that's and the reason why he's a CPA. For more on taxes, check out the Ask Pure section of the Learning Center at YourMoneyYourWealth.com for videos on tax efficiency tips you should know, tax reduction strategies for high-income earners, tax deferral strategies, and much more. If you can't find the answers to your money questions at YourMoneyYourWealth.com, call 888-994-6257 for your chance to have Joe and Big Al answer them live during Your Money, Your Wealth. Whether it's about taxes, retirement, investing, social security, or how market volatility will affect your retirement, there's a pretty good chance these fellows can give you the insight that'll help you make better money moves. That number again is 888-994-6257. If you'd prefer to email us, you can do that too. Just send your questions to info at purefinancial.com, just like Harry did. This was sent uh, from Harry from Albuquerque. So we got fans in Albuquerque. Yeah, that's great. Good. goes, uh, Joe and Big Al. Yeah. I'm 55 years old and have a pension and 401k. The vast majority of my 401k balance, 450000 is in the pre-tax bucket with very little in the after-tax or Roth buckets. Okay. Currently, I have all three options in my workplace 401k. I max out my contributions per year, 24500 and then some. Currently, 10%, 6%, 2% to pre-tax, Roth, and after-tax respectively. What final percentages should I shoot for in each of the three buckets you guys talk about? Roth, tax-deferred, and taxable. By the time I want to retire in about seven years, which would be age 62. Thanks. 62, yeah, great question. And, and that's really a question that we all should be asking ourselves because if you don't think about it, you tend to end up with all your savings in a retirement account and you got no flexibility. No tax. No pre-tax. Ta- pre-tax, yeah. No tax diversification, right? And so the, the ability to have money in the Roth IRA uh, allows you to have much more flexibility on how you design your, your retirement income strategy and you can make it more tax efficient. And I guess the... I guess I would say the the most correct answer, although it takes a little bit of effort, is to look at your retirement expenses, what your retirement needs are, and calculate um, how much income you need from that. Let's just say, to give a little example, let's just say it's $100,000 a year and, and making it very simple, not even worrying about deductions. Just make it super simple. Just say, okay, you want to spend $100,000 a year and you're married and, and the top of the... 12% bracket, that's a pretty low bracket, is 77,000. Call it 75. We'll call it 75 for easy math, right? So that means about three quarters of your income should come from the regular 401k and about 
one quarter should come from the Roth IRA or money outside of retirement. And so then, then you just back up those numbers to see how much that you need in each pool to make this happen. Because what you don't really want is you need $100,000 and it's all in the pre-tax 401k. So now some of your income is taxed at a higher tax bracket. Right. So if all of the monies that you've saved is in just the standard 401k plan, right? you're pulling out the $100,000, you pull the $75,000 out, that's going to be taxed at 12%. And then you t- you pull out the other twenty five thousand to get you to the hundred thousand. Right. But then that's going to be taxed at twenty four percent. That's right. Right. But then you have to pay the tax on the twenty five thousand at twenty four percent, and you got to pay tax of twelve percent on this. Right. So you're going to have to be pulling more dollars out just to pay the tax on the full hundred thousand. Make sense? You, you do. That's that's correct. So what what Al and I have talked about for years on this show, and what um, Harry from Albuquerque was alluding to, he's like, okay, well, I I I understand that I probably want to have some diversification to pull dollars from different types of accounts on how they're taxed. And so Al's saying, all right, we'll pull $75,000 out roughly, right, to keep you in that low bracket. But any other additional dollar that you would like to spend in that given year, it would be nice if you had money in a Roth IRA because if those dollars come out, you will never be in that higher bracket. You'll never be in that 24% tax bracket. You would always be then in the 12% bracket, given that example. That's right. One correction, 22%. I'm bracket. sorry, 22%. Then yeah. it goes to the 24%. That's right. Thank you, Al. Yeah. Still just get my arms around the new tax code. <laughs> That's brand new, January 1st, 2018. <laughs> so, so here's some misnomers. N- no. Or misconceptions? misconceptions. Please get this right. <laughs> Vinny! For our friend Vinny. I'm sorry, brother. <laughs> so here is some um, misunderstandings. You could, you could say that. All right. That works. Is that, all right, well, let's say that I'm in a certain tax bracket today. I'm in the 22% tax bracket today, and it looks like I'm going to be in the 22% tax bracket in my retirement. Well, then having a Roth IRA is a wash. Yeah, right. Because, all right, well, here, I'm going to pay 22% now and have the money grow. And then when I pull it out, I'm saving 22% on the back end. And that is, to me, just a, a, a not a very good statement to say. And I agree with you. So you, you start. Why is that? A, what What's the advantage if you're in the same, same tax bracket? Because it's all about the diversification that you have in regards to your, t- your distributions. Because if I can't, let's say if I convert monies in the in the 24% bracket, but if I can keep myself in the 12% tax bracket in retirement, that's a huge delta. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Because now I have diversification. It's not, we don't live in a bubble, yeah. right? The, the mathematics don't work in that, that way in real life. That's all spreadsheet BS. Yeah. That, well, that's assuming your life is always the same every year. Sure. And here's where, where it falls apart is is all of a sudden you're in this 22% bracket or 24, whatever bracket you're in, doesn't really matter. But then you have a year where you want to buy a car and you don't particularly want to get a car loan. So where do you get that money from? You get it from your your IRA, your 401k, and now you're in a higher still tax bracket. Let's say you're married and your spouse passes, right? Now you're single. Now you're Now you're actually in the higher bracket just because even though they're the same tax rates, you hit these higher brackets sooner. And then there's the fact that you know, the, it's the same, same if you always spend the same amount each year. But what if you invest things in the Roth IRA that have a higher expected right. rate of return? We're not even talking about growth. That's right. So if I do a conversion and all of a sudden I have growth over the next 15 years, well, all of that growth is all mine. It's all tax-free to me. Right. If I keep it in the retirement account, all of that additional growth that's in the retirement account is going to be taxed at ordinary income rates. Yes, and you will pay ordinary taxes on it. <laughs> right. It, it's also um, it's a better asset to pass to your kids because Absolutely. they get it tax free. So right. that, there's a lot of reasons. Even there's if no required minimum distributions correct. in a so Roth. You, so you have flexibility. You so have... it can compound tax free forever. Right. Right. Well, now you know well, you, when, you'll once, have to take required distributions when a non-spouse. Yeah, so when your kids get it, it, they have to take a required distribution, but you don't. So as long as you or your spouse are alive, it, it can grow tax-free for as long as that occurs. So I guess to to truly answer the question is, what percentage do you want? I wish it was an easier. I, I do too, because because you can't just say, all right, seventy-five percent in the pre-tax, twenty-five percent in the Roth. It depends. 
I mean, there, it's when we when we look at this, you have social security. When we look, it's it's all over the board depending upon your circumstances. And sometimes when advisors that are even savvy enough to talk about Roths and the, their clients will go to them, how much should I have in the Roth? They go, oh, twenty five percent. It's like, where'd you get that? Well, it's, it's a round number. <laughs> sounds good. Or how much should I convert? Hundred thousand. Sure. Where'd you get that? Uh, because that's a good number. <laughs> I would I would go a step further, Harry. Is that and anyone else that's listening that does have the ability um, to put pre-tax dollars in um, or Roth dollars, but also the addition of after-tax dollars because you can put above and beyond the defined contribution limits of the twenty-four thousand five hundred in a standard four hundred one k plan if the plan allows right. after-tax contributions. You could get up to over fifty thousand dollars of contribution in that particular plan. Now, only if you wanted to go pre-tax, only twenty-four five would be pre-tax. But the additional twenty-six thousand dollars, right? I'm rounding, would be after-tax within the plan. So now you have fifty thousand dollars. Let's just say twenty-five thousand pre-tax, twenty-five thousand dollars after-tax one year. If you wanted to save that much money in that given year. Right. What you could do then is that $25,000 of after-tax, you could convert that directly into a Roth IRA, right? And so it, it's like now we talked about, you know, backdoor Roth IRAs. Sure. I mean, this is the back garage door of Roth IRAs. <laughs> this is the dump truck version. <laughs> it's let's a, let's right? get some big amounts It's in. a large amount that because you can't contribute $25,000 into a Roth IRA. It's only $5,500 or sixty-five if you're over 50. Right. So here you're doing an after-tax contribution up to that $50,000 limit. It's a little bit more than that. But then you can convert that directly into a Roth. Now you can really have something here. Now, I'd much rather have dollars in a Roth IRA than I would in an after-tax account because the after-tax account is still going to be subject to capital gains rates. If it's in a Roth, it will never, ever be taxed. So if you do have the ability to put after-tax dollars in your 401k plan, I would highly Take a, I would highly suggest you take a look at that just to figure out exactly what is the appropriate strategy for you because I'm telling you, the most important investment you can make, it's an investment you make in yourself. All right, that's it for us today. For Big Al Clopine, I'm Joe Anderson. Thanks a lot for listening. We'll catch you next time on Your Money, Your Wealth. So to recap today's show, it's tax time and your chances of being audited are low, but your chances of paying penalties if you don't file and pay your taxes on time are rather high. The answer to the question, how much should I have in Roth, tax-deferred, and taxable accounts, like so many other things, is it depends. Call 888-994-6257 to get a free assessment of your personal financial situation. Market volatility is back after years of calm, but Chuck Norris, he doesn't watch the market. The market watches him. Our job is to be like Chuck Norris and stay the course, not letting fear and greed guide us. Chuck Norris had to ask what fear meant. Special thanks to our guest, Michael, for sharing his inspiring story of financial independence and retiring at age 36. For more about Michael and his fire coaching, visit financiallyalert.com. Subscribe to the podcast at yourmoneyyourwealth.com, Apple Podcasts, or iTunes, where you can check out those kind ratings and reviews, or on your favorite podcaster. Gotta love it. If you've got a burning money question for Joe and Big Al to answer live on Your Money, Your Wealth, email info at purefinancial.com or call 888-994-6257. Listen next time for more Your Money, Your Wealth presented by Pure Financial Advisors. For your free financial assessment, visit purefinancial.com. Pure Financial Advisors is a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full and informed investment decision. 